The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. My name is Toby Manhire and this is a special pop-up bonus extra episode of Gone By Lunchtime, the Spin-Off's Politics podcast. You'll be hearing a lot this week, you may already have heard quite a lot, about Blue Blood, a book by Andrea Vance about the bad times in the National Party, the bad times which followed the departure of John Key and Bill English. It's a story that everyone who listens to this podcast will be familiar with, but there are lots of details and there's quite a lot of new material in there that makes for a, for a gripping read. Andrew Vance was kind enough to zoom in from Wellington to chat to us about the book. Uh, many thanks to our beloved members for making this podcast happen, to Tiahe Butler, our producer. I began by asking Andrea about the New Zealand situation vis-a-vis the British one because I said to her, watching the British Boris Johnson implosion and the psychodrama around that, it made me think that that was a peculiarly British example, but then reading her book, I realised that we too have our extraordinary catastrophic moments. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I mean, I'm, I'm like you, I'm a huge British political nerd. I love it. And I've been following the, the Boris dramas. I mean, I'm, I have to say I am, I've read every single book that's been written about Boris. I am slightly obsessed by him because I find him such a fascinating character. So I've been, I have been glued to that. Um, and the one, the one thing I, the one thing about that whole, as you sort of say, that psychodrama was the moment when his two key, the first two key ministers quit while he's live on air. Like that is next level bitchiness. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, he's like, he's like giving his spiel and doing his professional, pol- as much as Boris can be a professional politician. And all of a sudden, the, and that was clearly planned. And so I think, I think that's the ultimate in, na- in nasty politics, you know, that, that is really pulling the rug out from someone. And as bad as the Nats got at their worst, <laughs> their worst and it does get pretty bad. Mm. Um, I don't think that, I don't think they're quite as bad as the British tw- Tories. I think there's a, 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 a New Zealand politics, this period is pretty bad as the Nats imploded, but, um, it was never as, it was never as bad as, probably ever gotten Britain or Australia. Like it, it mm. all happened. Yes, you can, it's, it's writ large in the book and you can see all everything that went down. But we, a lot of that, we didn't, we didn't know on the outside how nasty it got. You know, there was hints of it, but, but they managed to keep it under wraps. And apart from maybe Jamie Lee Ross, 
um, and Simon Bridges, there was no real overt kind of, um, not stabbing in the back, but stabbing in the front. Yeah, it's interesting when you mentioned that, the way that the, some of that horror stuff played out. One of the things we don't have here that they do in the UK, certainly in the States, and to some extent in Australia, is rolling news. You know, it's a, mm. sometimes it gets to be, feel like it's a rolling news agenda, but it's just not quite the same, is it? Like, in a, in a way, if there's one, one thing that the Nats might be grateful for over the course of this period is that there weren't political editors at 10.30 at night delivering <laughs> live crosses from outside Parliament. <laughs> Definitely, and I think um, I think that's absolutely that's absolutely true. We don't have that twenty four hour Sky um, news, and I think the problem with that is that as a as <laughs> and it, obviously when you're reporting politics, you're always looking for something like there always has to be a fresh angle, and that's so much more true in in um, you know in online media. Mm, mm. Um, but but we live we do live stream everything, so every event is live stream. Yeah, but yeah. But you, those live streamers won't turn up until there's an event. So by and large, the political parties can control that. You know, there are the set pieces, the caucus runs, and the bridge runs, and that kind of thing. But but they don't actually have to go out and talk unless they really really want to. I mean, the exception to that would be, I guess, on really big days at Parliament. You know, you have a reporter staking out all the doors. You know, the back door and yes, the rubber door, yes. and we're chasing them down the road, down the. Um, but again, there are many, many different entrances to Parliament, and if you don't want to show up and talk to cameras, you actually have to. You can't avoid it. So you knew it was a particularly big day when you could see Tover O'Brien's beret chasing <laughs> politicians around the so, precinct. That is so true. That's so true. And fair play to Tova, because there are many political editors over the years who would send the minions out to do that work. <laughs> Me being one of the minions, not one of Tova's minions, but you know, uh, but Tova was always there. Yeah. She loves the drama. She's fantastic. Um, so, so the other thing, the other thing in in New Zealand. I think is very different um, is that we don't have this is, I think this is my favourite phrase and I really regret that we don't have it but we don't have Tory rebels you know like yeah. the parties are much more whipped and there's yeah. much more discipline here yeah. we don't because of MMP we don't have that culture of backbench revolts which I wish there were I love backbench revolts why can't we have more can you imagine can you imagine if the maybe not the Greens because they're always kind of revolting but the um, can you imagine if Labour backbenchers that you've never heard of yeah the closest we've come is Aaron Gilmore, and it was a mini revolt. That's right, and we don't see we don't see MPs crossing the floor very often, and that's barely wow. a phrase I've seen mentioned in the New Zealand political media for a long time. Whereas maybe slightly just because of the sheer number of MPs, you know, five hundred and fifty MPs or whatever in Parliament. Of course, in the UK, when you get a big majority, there's going to be a lot of rebels, and there are a lot of kind of different factions. The you know the geriatrics and the newbies and all that. I mean, we want a bit of that. Should we triple the number of MPs simply for the storylines? Yes. We need more elderly aristocrats in Parliament <laughs> <laughs> when they're just delightful phrasings. Um, yeah, but we don't, and when they do cross, because I again, that's, I love that phrase, crossing the floor. I love all those political terms. Um, and but when they do cross the floor, it's for really boring stuff like the TPP with Phil <laughs> Goff and was it Phil Goff and David Shearer? I think now I'm, my memory's failing me, but you know the. Trade, yeah. trade deals and and native logging, like okay, these things are very important, but they're not like sexy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you wouldn't turn over Coronation Street to watch a live debate on native logging, would you? There was. We said that there wasn't rolling news coverage, but there was through lots of this period that you uh, document, you know, which sort of begins from uh, John Key's resignation. There was particularly in the really crunchy periods, particularly in the most condensed periods, a sense that it was playing out in real time and reading through the book, 
you know, I mean, I was glued to that stuff. I was writing about a lot of it. Some of it I watched, you know, firsthand. Very bits I'd forgotten. Going through, it was like, oh, my God, that's right. That particular <laughs> detail happened with Andrew Falloon or that moment in the Todd and Muller saying, were you like that too? Or did you, have you got a brain where it was all up there and it just poured out? Or did you go, were you sort of stunned to recall some of the moments? Some some of it I was so so twenty twenty seventeen campaign I was twenty seven campaign was the most mental thing I think I've ever lived through mm. <laughs> it was crazy and then um, it was just mad 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 from the moment that Materia stood up and made her confession about um, you know benefits to 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 the negotiate like the endless negotiation period sitting in Bowen House eating lollies you mm. know that whole period was insane. Um, so I, I pretty much remembered every detail of every event from that. Maybe 2020, I don't know, maybe it's age, but also the 2020 campaign I didn't follow in the same way. I wasn't a Daily Beat reporter. I was working on a, a longer read that came out after the election. Mm. And and so I wasn't at every stand-up or every event. And, I, and so there was bits of it I was like, had of not necessarily passed me by, but, but at the time seemed very insignificant. But behind the scenes, then when I went to do the interviews and talk to people and find out what really happened, mm. those very small things that didn't seem like much um, were actually much bigger behind the scenes. They had much more significance to the people who were who were in the party, you know. So I, sp- I suppose there was that. But I think the beauty of it is when you do the beauty of writing a book, and it, it was so good in a way because when when you're reporting politics, you sort of you do your page lead of a day or you, you write, you file your story of a day and then the next day you move on to the next thing and mm. then the next thing. And and of course, yes, there is obviously a theme like in the election campaign, it's a horse race, who's ahead, who's not. Uh, you know, what's morale like in the party? Is This party's raising money, this party's, you know, poor, that kind of thing. But um, you never really get the huge big picture. So you never, the beauty about writing the book was I could take a step back and, I mean, in my head, I knew there were, there were significant moments in, in the fortunes of the National Party, like the minute that John Key resigned, but also going back to the deal that Key and English struck back in 2006. And mm. even right the way back to 2002, when they appointed Stephen Joyce to do the election um, review after that disastrous 2002 campaign. Mm. All I knew those things were all very significant, but it was really cool to sit down and and map them all out and and tell the story of how all these things interconnected to yes. to end up where they are today. So yeah. And you had a had a had a lot of people who spoke to you, clearly. I mean the book is informed by a whole bunch of different voices, which is one of the reasons it's so fascinating. Many of them are, you know, are clearly on the record. The, you know, John Key's there and Jonathan Coleman, Chris Finlayson, Paula Bennett, a bunch of others. And a number of people who have, uh, for reasons of their own <laughs> job security and, and so on, uh, uh, given you anonymous information. How did you go about, how was the process of bringing those people to you to talk about those times? Was that difficult or were people ready to talk about it? I don't generally, st- I mean, people will talk to me. If I think if you give people, a, as a journalist, if you build a reputation as being a, a fair, you know, people will talk to you. So mm. I guess I had the foundation that everyone knew who I was. You know, I'd been in the gallery for 10 years. I'd reported through mu- much of the period. So, so it wasn't like I was introducing myself fresh to these people. Um, look, I think 
it's much easier to get as a journalist. It's much easier to get people to talk to you after a passage of time mm. because in the moment those people wouldn't have talked to me about the, the things that they said they would never have said at the time because because they didn't know how it was going to play out and and everything you know events had much more significance or um, there was so much more at stake. I guess the, with the passage of time there were more and they were able to reflect as well. Sometimes you don't understand how things are. Because you're in them, but you know, a couple of years later, you're able to look back and think, "Oh, this is why this happened." Or, mm. um, so I, I had the I had the benefit of the passage of time from much of the events, and and obviously the um, in the early period of the book, the key years, like most of those people were very proud of what they built. Yes. You know, like they were happy to talk about it, and and national people are very the Na- national party politicians are very pragmatic. Like they they understand when things go wrong, and they're generally quite forthright about where the problems lie so so I was lucky in that sense I think um you know for whatever you think about the national party and their politics or whatever the generally the people are quite honest and um and able to um I guess separate their politics from from reality or you know the events hmm. and except when things have gone wrong who was to blame um I think if I was writing the book Today, uh, I th- well, so uh, what happened was, um, as I was nearing the end of the process of writing the book, obviously Christopher Luxon took over, and then um, mm. appar- apparently they had this caucus meeting um, in Queenstown where the book was discussed. Right. <laughs> apparently it's at some length, and then uh, Christopher Luxon told his MPs that they weren't allowed to talk to me. So there was a, a gagging order. It was unfortunate because mo- most of them had already talked to me at that point and it was too late, like the book was nearly done. Oh. Um, so I think the discipline has been instilled now and, and um, they've moved into a new phase. So I was just really lucky with the timing and that people were reflecting at what went wrong. Um, they could see a brighter future. I started when Judith, I started writing the book, well, started the interviews at the end of October. So I guess Judith was clearly on her way out, you know, that like it, there was an acceptance that Judith was going to go yeah. and there would be, it would either be Bridges or Luxon, whatever happened. So, so they were in a brighter moment. Also, uh, what I found was when I interviewed people, like the interviews were so long and I really, every single interview, I'm a bit of an idiot because I transcribe every interview and my interviews are generally really long, like, because I'm a bit of a talker, as you can see. Um, So, so a lot of the people who were involved, and this is particularly true for um, I guess the key players, but the staffers, the staffers particularly. Yeah. And at the at the end of the interview, they go, "Oh, I feel better." <laughs> so it was a bit of a. Did you have them on a on a sofa in your office, sort of lying <laughs> down and spilling no, it I out? Didn't. I, did, I didn't, <laughs> but it did have that kind of vibe. Yeah. Like people were just, they were just like ready to talk yeah. and ready to be like, "This bloody awful thing happened to me," yeah. and. I think people underestimate, like, it's a bit of a soap opera politics, but people forget that they are real people. And these are ambitious people who make huge sacrifices, politicians and staffers, for their career. And then it all can crumble overnight because of someone else's bad behaviour. So it was a bit like, oh, it feels good to get that out. And, and I feel like a lot of them were like, oh, it's actually nice that someone's interested in my point of view or, or validate, you know, what, what I, so I, there was a little bit of that. So, but I think I was just really fortunate in the timing. And if I had sat down to write a book about the Nats today, I think I'd have much, much more trouble. Right. And so some of the material you got before that edict was issued um, by Christopher Luxon included, included sort of some new information. I mean, one of the things that leaps out is the, the internal party review 
of the uh, 2020 campaign, which has obviously got some pretty fascinating and pretty candid assessments in it. Um, that's new. There's a bunch of other new stuff in there. What, what were the bits to you when you looked, as you mentioned, revisiting that over a wider arc? What were the sort of dots that you were able to join that we couldn't see? Was there anything particular in terms of the new material, in terms of the new information, that review notwithstanding, that, that, that you thought, aha, <laughs> uh-huh, that kind of joins, that joins up A, B and C? Yeah, I mean, the the review, I was chuffed to bits when I got my mitts on the review, I have to say. Um, I bet. Yeah, because, you know, the, the the desire for a scoop never leaves you. But um, the, yeah, I, but what was, what was, I mean, obviously there's the, like, this is great, This but also what was really good was because I, I got it towards the end of the um, interviewing and research period, although I had, oh, no, wait, I'd already started writing. So I sort of knew, I sort of knew I was, I had been promised to me for many months and then, and then I eventually got it. Mm. But I was so far in the process and, and the review, and so the picture that I was building of, and, and the, the review kind of basically is the book <laughs> because it, it sort of points to all the things that went wrong yeah. from the English Joyce tight team and the frustrations that built up and the ambitions that bubbled to the surface that destabilized English yeah. and, and then later on the whole party. So that it was really nice that the review kind of confirmed what I was thinking, my theories and, and what I was writing. So that was quite good. I was, I was quite delighted that National formed the same view of themselves that I had formed. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be validated. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose it was it, it, it not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a new thing, but I, what was not a pleasure, but what what was really interesting to me was to go back and look at the key years and re have a fresh look at why that was such a successful time, right. why that political machine was so well oiled and how it worked, and talking to all the people on the inside who would never have explained it to me, you know, at the time. But what made what made it so good and what its flaws were. So that that for me that was really fascinating, and I think the most fun I had in writing the whole. The whole book was the, there's a whole chapter on 2017 covering the rise of Jacinda Mm. and what happened to the Green Party and then the negotiations. And so um, finding out what was going on behind the scenes in those negotiations, I think, was the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. And I think that's because I was talking to people from all different parties and I was trying to take a helicopter view and get a sense of what everyone was thinking. And it was so fun because at that time, I was sitting downstairs in Bowen House with all the other reporters. You know, we're reading the lolly cups and meandering to Facebook Lives with literally nothing to say. And there's all this, this frenetic activity happening above us. Mm. And we, we didn't know. We had no idea what was going on. And it was such a joy to, like, to actually find out what was happening right. you know, while we were oblivious downstairs. Right, to suddenly be able to kind of pull away the wall and <laughs> see what was actually happening on the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, so that while we were, you know, while the staffers were watching game shows and we were you know, like bored and chasing Winston from Vietnamese restaurant to (laughs) Vietnamese restaurant. And this was what was actually happening. And then the other thing, which isn't, which there's a whole chapter on the ACT Party and its relationship to National. Mm. And um, I suppose it was really good to go back and um, uh, to work out what was, like I hadn't, I didn't realise the extent to which the, the relationship with the National Party destroyed act what it did to the act mm. party internally and all the tussles and and the, the, I mean it was so bad that poor old John Boscowen had to resign because he was so mentally exhausted by all the infighting yeah. so those things 
maybe they're not the greatest scoop, so they, you know they're not going to make a page lead in the Dominion Post. But I find that stuff really fascinating. That real behind the scenes, what was actually going on, was the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. And it really helps the telling of the story, I think, to have those chapters that focus on the Labour Greens element and the ACT element, because especially in an MMP environment, the dynamics are such that no one is in a vacuum, and no politics are you, but the, the, the things that are happening in the other parties have dramatic effects. And so when you talk about John Key and what worked, one of the things that's interesting to me is you talk about the kitchen cabinet and the, you know, it, it's both in terms of the senior MPs and critical roles. It's in terms of running the campaigns. It's in terms of running the office. So there's these crucial staffers like Wayne Eagleson. And then, you know, Key was clearly conscious of succession. He was clearly conscious of bringing up these people. We had the Simon Bridges, the Nicky Kays, the, all these people that were promoted through his cabinet. He was very conscious of that, clearly. So I don't think you could accuse John Key or the people around him of ignoring the importance of succession planning. And yet, I guess, I guess the question at the end of that is, is there anything when you look back on it that he could, he or his team could have done differently to avoid this kind of atrophying that happened after he left. It's so interesting because that was actually when when um, when we started the process of, of, you know, with the publisher about like, do you want to do this book? How is it going to work? What's it going to be in it? And, and there was, t- there was two, there was two key questions I set out to answer. Mm. And I don't think I've answered either of them. And that was <laughs> one of them. <laughs> I just wrote the book and kind of forgot about it. You know, I did the classic politician thing, ignore the question and <laughs> say what you want to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, so the, the, um, the two, the two key things were, um, how do you avoid, how do you, opposition parties in New Zealand avoid this catastrophic cycle of, I guess, boom and bust, Mm, like, mm. you know, very successful John Key, Helen Clark, then they fall into opposition and they just tear each other apart. They And that was the saddest thing about writing the book was what Key and Joyce and English and Eagleson built was a phenomenal political machine. And they tore it apart like this, Again, I'm not. I don't want anyone to think I'm pro Nats or anti Nats. That's not what. That's not what a journalist does. But but they built this almost beautiful, perfect political machine, mm. and within five years they tore it apart. They destroyed it, mm. and that's kind of that's kind of sad. Like that's you know to build something, have success and achievement, and then and then have others destroy it. On, on you know on the altar of ambition and ego. Um. So yeah. Anyway, so back to back to what you were asking. The um, that was I set out to answer that question: Can political parties avoid that cycle of destruction? Mm. And well, I th- I think probably no. And because uh, because ultimately, in a political party, you always have alpha poli- alpha people. Yes. They're always ambitious. They're always on the climb to the top. Almost every. MP thinks that they should be party leader or prime minister. That's why they get into it, you know? Um, and so there's always going to be this scramble for the top, the scramble up the greasy pole. And, and that's human nature. It's the nature of politicians. So to an extent, when there is success, you can keep a lid on that, you know, mm. because, and that's what Key did very successfully. All those people underneath thought that they, as long as Key was successful and the party was disciplined and united, they had a chance to climb up the pole. As soon as that sort of slipped or faded a little bit, they all climbed out and they were, that's what, what led to all the problems. So, so no, I don't think that they can avoid it. I don't, I don't know how you, I, I don't know how you, um, 
I mean, you can stack the party with very um, obvious candidates for leadership, you know, a wide range of people. And that's what Key did. But there's a there's a really good quote in the book from a very senior anonymous um, national MP who says, well, they he did succession planning. He had the Bridges and the Ks and the Bennets and then they all blew it. Every single one of them blew it. So I don't know what the answer is. The second question I set out to answer was what is the future of a modern national party, mm. like post-Trump, mm. post-Brexit, post-populism? And again, again, I don't think I answered that question either. <laughs> I don't think even National can answer that no. question. And I, I think that therein lies one of their greatest problems. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I want to come back to, to all of that in a bit um, about, about <laughs> Luxon and, and the situation now, because it's, it's fascinating in light of your book, which all of them will read. We'll come back to that in a bit. But just tracing in whistle-stop fashion through some of this <laughs> extraordinary story. I mean, one of the key moments was the Simon Bridges the Simon Bridges episode, uh, your book tells this part of it fascinatingly. It was an expenses thing. It was relatively trivial. It was going to be made public in a matter of days anyway. But Bridges just couldn't let it go. And this was a story that was a News Hub story. And that, I mean, again, I don't want to get too much into counterfactuals because... Who can say, right? But if that thread hadn't been pulled, if he didn't get the bit between the teeth on that, who knows? Maybe Jamie Lee Ross, maybe it would be worse, Jamie Lee Ross would still be in the party. Maybe Jamie Lee Ross would be the leader of the National Party. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, (laughs) that set in motion, that sort of set in motion, maybe it would have happened anyway, but it set in motion, didn't it? A whole series of cascading catastrophes. It really did, and and it, it's it's so weird because I I still don't really understand. Well, I think I do understand. I think I think at that point Simon was already being white answered, and he was already feeling like the party was against them, mm. and you know there was grumblings mm. and all that kind of thing. So I I think uh, yeah I think it, it was a defensive m- m- move from him, and it shouldn't have. It was just it was so stupid, you know. Like it was just he took on Trevor and. And but all of that said, yes, there were mistakes made in that. But I think that Jamie Jamie Lee Ross was always already on that path. He was there was gonna he was gonna do something yeah. to bring down Simon. Yeah. He was already feeling embittered and frustrated, and and his ambitions weren't being um, fulfilled. And 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 you know and what, what you know and he you know he was if, as he has it he was in the middle you know he was mental health was suffering he was in on the path to a breakdown. So I think something would have always happened. But yeah, it was so ridiculous that it was over those stupid expenses that like we they come out every quarter and we report on them every quarter and you give the politicians a bit of a flick for wasting taxpayers' money and then everyone moves on, you know? It's bizarre. And then fast forwarding through into COVID, Tom Bridges is still there. The party is still polling really well. And then mm-hmm. then some of the criticisms that Bridges uh, leveled at the government response. You describe them in this in the book, or I think a staff might describe them as looking caustic and carping. Um, it was an interesting period because I, like you, have looked back at that over time. And the actual substance of the criticisms that Simon Bridges on the Epidemic Response Committee and in other forums was making, they held up. They were pretty sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yet they just didn't land tonally at the time, you know, and I think Simon Bridges accepts this. Um, They didn't land tonally, and then there was that Facebook post 
in which he just got absolutely savaged, including from people who were traditional national supporters. I, I've been sort of thinking about that a bit, and it's one of those it's one of those great challenges of opposition. And we're seeing it a bit again with Luxon, I think, now in mm. terms of some of the criticism he's copped over some of the remarks that were made in the Polyus Exchange speech or the Q&A after that in London, mm. is finding a line where you can be heavily critical of the government while being pro New Zealand, you know, like, and that's, it's not just here, but it's particularly a New Zealand character. It's like if you're seen as somehow being uh, sabotaging our kind of our nation, is you know, there's a, it's an interesting challenge, don't you think? Definitely. So there's t- there's two things to that. There's, so there's a, there's a, always a fine line, and h- how traditionally it's done in opposition mm. is um, you for a period of this, the three year cycle you hold the government to account you um you are i guess negative but not um as you you're carping you know mm. like you are you you are strong you hold them to account um and and there's a period of negativity as you get closer to the election so in the election year say or in this just as you head into the summer you flip and it becomes your message becomes less about criticizing the government and more about your vision for um your vision for the country mm. and for your government, for your leadership. So that's the traditional path that you follow. 2020 upended politics and, and it accelerated the cycle. It, it made us all much more political animals. We were all glued to the 1pms. Every single um, every single sentence was picked over. And we were, as a country, super sensitive, extra sensitive mm. about everything, mm. you know, like, are we doing the right thing? These are unprecedented times. Is our response right? We're make, all making extraordinary sacrifices. And there was, a, there was a weird kind of thing going on in New Zealand where we were, we were very defensive about what we were, our elimination strategy and, you know, we're doing better than anyone and et cetera, et cetera. And, and Simon Bridges just got that totally wrong, completely wrong. He just, he went into the old model of of negative politics, which he's very, very good at, and holding the government to account. And it just was the wrong time mm. for it. He should have just um, he should have just gone into the. I think one of the politicians in the book just sort of talks about it in the in the world war um, phase. You just have to get in behind the government and show show support, mm. and that's what they were advising him behind the scenes. You know, you've got to be more positive and united front with the government, and that's what he should have done, and he didn't. Mm. And and I think. But then I, whatever whatever Simon Bridges did in 2020 um, wouldn't have mattered because Jacinda was always going to win the election in 2020. That was always going to be a, a landslide because the nation was thanking her for her efforts, essentially, and they didn't want to um, change. They didn't want to un- unsettle the mm. COVID response. So, um, so Simon got it wrong and, then, and the party overreacted. So they, and I think you can trace it back to what there's a, there's a phrase in the election review mm. that I think is really telling where I'm just going to read it. It said, it says resentment pervaded their approach to opposition. Mm. So they couldn't get over the defeat in 27. Well, they weren't defeated in 27. They couldn't get over losing out to labor in 2017. Yeah. And, and for the 27 to, to until COVID struck, they believed that it was going to be a one-term government yeah. and it was just a blip and they were going to return to power and national would continue and the key English experiment would go on 
it all would be right with the world. And then that didn't happen. It was, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, going back to that election night in 2017, it was broadly being analysed as a national victory. You know, we didn't know which way it was going to go and you've, 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 you've detailed what, what played out. But it was, I mean, I remember <laughs> the Herald on Sunday the next day basically had some headline that talked about victory for English. So, it, so it, that, that, that did set the process, didn't it? Just to, just to push it ahead to that, that resentment and that uh, overreaction, as you put it, manifested in the Todd Miller, the Todd Muller, I never knew how to pronounce his name, Muller, I'm still not sure, the Todd Muller, the Todd Muller, uh, 53 days, you know, which seemed like 53 (laughs) hours and 53 years, it was a strange bubble of time, right? And yeah, there's great detail on the book, but one of the things that I was kind of, my jaw dropped upon reading, which I hadn't seen before, was that according to people near him, he went home at 8pm on the night of his, of his victory and sort of thought, that's lovely, I'll go home and have a cup of tea and, a, and, um, and some bacon and eggs. And then, and then this, is a, this is a quote. chicken and coleslaw. Was coleslaw, <laughs> with it, sorry, the important detail. Um, but then also, and this is a quote from an unnamed person, so, you know, take that, as, take that with, with that grain of salt, but it said, he wasn't involved in his own reshuffle. And at that point, I just think, what the fuck? Like, how can you be your whole life? You know, he wanted to be president of the United States and then he realised that wasn't attainable and so he downscaled. But with with that level of ambition, that level of plotting that he, whether or not you think he drove that hard, he was obviously instrumental in it. And then to go, oh, yeah, I'll just, it'll look after itself. What is going on? Well, I think further on from that, um, there's another quote that says, like his his head was stuffed from day one. I think is the exact quote, mm. and 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 I think that's what was wrong. Mm. I think he just couldn't handle the pressure. Mm. And and he's he's talked about um he's written about it in great detail about what was going on in his head. And it's absolutely um it's his description of of what happened to him is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's one it's one of the the great my great regrets in the book is that he he wouldn't he agreed to talk to me and we had an interview established and then obviously Christopher Luxon. Well, I, I understand Christopher Lux, and then that was the point where he said, "No, right, no more interviews, right. or don't, don't be, don't be talking." So, um, but that's what I would, I would love, I would have loved to have sat down with with Miller and and gone through, you know, what what actually went wrong. But yeah, I mean, the and and the and the staff, like I talked to so many staffers of that period who were who were all experienced hands, long term political operatives, long term in the in the Beehive and around Parliament, mm. and they were just like. What the hell? <laughs> they just couldn't believe. They just could not mm. believe what was happening. Um, the the level of chaos and indecision and and just sheer unprofessionalism that was that was just a, an absolute. Um, it was just chaotic. I think um, a train wreck is is how one of them described. Yeah, train wreck. It. Train wreck. I think you named a cap, uh, one of the chapters train wreck, and and there's a few quite. That's the metaphor people. Call it. The other one is car crash. <laughs> Quite a lot from various of your sources as well, and then and then yeah. and then another chapter heading of you that you use is hospital pass, which of course is what happened when when Judith Collins at last got the job she'd coveted all those years. And you know, reading it again, you kind of think, well, quite right. Of course, she got the job. Even at the time, it was like, what else are you going to do? And there's even one one feels some amount of sympathy for her being left with the the carnage from that train wreck in the form of to mix the metaphor the hospital pass, and yet she still manages to to, to make. It, right to mangle it further drives another another train another car into the crushed 
pile up. It's another extraordinary period in New Zealand politics. Well, and you know, I we see Judith Collins as a very two-dimensional character, and I suppose in a sense she's one of the like hand quotes villains, you know, like because it was such a such a disastrous campaign and the way she behaved in the campaign and afterwards. And but I talked to people. It was it's you know it's not easy to get people to defend Judith. Mm. To be fair, um, there's still a lot of anger um, towards her and towards Miller as well. Um, about how things played out but you know the campaign was always it was always it was a hospital pass it was always going to be really difficult and people did talk about her having a certain element of dignity she went out there every day and and I saw this with Phil Goff as well and one of the saddest Mm. things I've ever seen in in politics is the 2011 campaign when poor old Phil Goff had to go out to these lonely campaign events and every day get up and he'd be so cheerful and he'd go out there and it's the worst job and I would not do that job for all the tea in China it's horrendous and she she went out there and she did it and there's a quote by someone defending her right right at the end of of the of the chapter where she where she falls on her sword and 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 it talks about and it goes back to that issue of mental health it talks about how alone she was and how she didn't have the right levels of support yes she had her coterie of of let's be brutally honest not very talented people around her she didn't have the big guns. She didn't mm. have the support. Um, and it was a very lonely time. And it's Judith's a really tough character. There's not many people in politics like her. She's very resilient. But it must have been bloody hard. Like, you, whatever you think about her, you you have to have an element of sympathy for her, I think. It was a really, really tough job. It was a hospital pass. And they gave it to her and then and then kind of let her get on with it, let, let the disaster unfold in a sense, you know, and and Judith did what Judith was always going to do. She was all she was always the character. There was no surprises in how that leadership played out. I think the, the one thing that did um, surprise me about Judith's leadership was um, I followed Judith's career the whole time I was in the gallery. I, uh, those were my rounds. Her her portfolios. I've interviewed mm-hmm. her many many times. When she was a minister, I guess prior to twenty fourteen, she was a phenomenal political success. She had brilliant in- instincts. Maybe not quite. Key Joyce level, but she had great instincts for saying the right thing and what people wanted to hear, what would play well. And and she's really good. She was really good at politics. I don't understand what happened in 2020 because she was really bad at politics mm. in 2020. She's great on issues. Like she was great as an opposition spokesperson, a particular portfolio. She would just nail it every day. She knew exactly, like raise a focus. But maybe the maybe the lack of people around her, the the, the tearing up of the plan seemingly on a whim one you know all the of the Monday that. night massacre right yeah i mean <laughs> yeah. and then and then let's push it you know then 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 the we we know what happened in the election as you say it was always going to go one way but it was made worse that review happened which uh mp's were only able to see in the caucus room but somehow andrea vance got a copy of it which um which uh, I, uh, who can say how that happened um and then <laughs> and then i'm kind of looking for you talk about 2002, early on in the book, when mm. National were wiped out as a mm. phoenix moment. It happened to be the year that John Key came into Parliament too. Yeah, um, yeah. Looking for, what, what's the phoenix moment from this? Was it that election defeat or was it the night that Judith Collins decided to try and torpedo Simon Bridges, who was making lots of noises around the traps about 
having another go. Was it that when 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 another extraordinary night played out? What was the Phoenix moment, the lowest point, maybe we could call it, the point from which National went? Jonathan Coleman said at one point of that early period that we just we just got sick of losing. We just you know what's the was that it was that it when they and when Luxon was was appointed leader. I mean, those are the obvious ones that that night where Judith tried to to bring down Simon and and brought down herself in the process. I, I guess that's an obvious one. Maybe if I was trying to be clever about it, I'd say, well, is the Phoenix moment. The moment when John Key anointed Luxon mm. and Luxon expressed an interest in politics. And then, I mean, let's be honest, Key, Key is responsible for Luxon's career. He wouldn't have been selected in Botany if he didn't have Key behind the mm. scenes and Key doing the ring. So, so maybe it, maybe it was John, when John Key decided that Luxon was his heir apparent, maybe way back in God, even when was that? Was it 2019? Maybe that, maybe I that think was it. Might it. Have been, yeah. But so, um, so I guess, but the obvious, the obvious one is is when they finally managed to remove the mill around their neck, which was Judith Collins. Um, and I guess, an, yeah, not a phoenix moment, but a very key event, I think, happened more recently. It actually happened, funnily enough, I don't want to give away the conclusion of the book because my publisher will kill me, but, um, but the... The day, the day I delivered the manuscript, um, so send it in at like nine or ten a.m. and then bloody Simon quits politics forever. It's like <laughs> Simon, what are you doing to yeah. me? Like the the whole the whole um, you know ascension of of Chris Luxon kind of had to change the latter half of the book. So that that was already a I already had to do more work, yeah. and go off and find out more about Luxon and that kind of thing. And then Simon quits on me. So. Um, so that, that I had to, there was some hasty rewrites. Um, but I think, I think that parting of ways and you'll have to buy the book to find out what actually went on. I'm not going to give that away, but there's more, there's more to that story of, of Simon's decision to leave politics. And I think that is a key moment in what the National Party will be in the future. The tensions that always exist in national between the liberals and the conservative factions mm. and, but not just that, but the, d- the direction of the party, you know, the economic direction, what they stand for, what's their North Star, what's their soul, what is the point of even being the National Party? And I think that diversion between Luxon and Bridges is, is a key moment and will play out into the future. In a way that broadly you think is in Luxon's favour? Uh, I'm not sure about yeah, that. Okay. I don't know. Of course. I... I, I I've not. I've yet to. I've yet to see. I've yet to make up my mind about Luxon. Like I haven't had. He wouldn't sit down with me for an interview. Yeah. I haven't had the opportunity to interview him. I've, I've watched everything he's ever said, every speech, and read all his speeches and stuff. But I do at, at the heart. I still. I mean, some some people have said it in the book. You know, they think is they're not my words, but they think his politics is very shallow, and so he doesn't stand for much. So I, I like I. I am yet to. I'm yet to work out who he is and, and what that means for the future of the party. Mm. So maybe I'll have to do another book. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll watch that in the sequel. The, well, let's talk about Lux in a bit. I mean, the, since the book, after the conclusion of the book, Luxon has had a couple of, I suppose, tests, which I want to ask you about, specifically the response to the Roe v. Wade, which mm. obviously reverberated around the world when that Supreme Court decision was issued. Christopher Luxon has is previously um, 
affirmed the proposition when put to him that uh, abortion is tantamount to murder. He's also been very clear that he will not attempt to change the existing settings in New Zealand. Life was made difficult for him by Simon O'Connor, the MP for Tamaki, who mm. showered a, his Facebook page with love hearts, I think, and said it was a good day. In terms of the lessons that one might draw from both the report and your longer narrative about the National Party, how would you assess Luxon's response to that challenge? Well, I think it goes back even further than Roe versus Wade. And I think it goes back to when he made clear in quite uncertain terms and quite certain terms what his positions were on these um, socially conservative issues. Mm. Way back to his, his sele- if you go back to his selection meeting, where he made a point of laying out his his um, his views on these issues, abortion in particular. Um, from that point on, it became a fixation of the media and of political commentators. Uh, Luxon's position on abortion, and it's strange because you know English. Uh, held similar position. Mm. Todd Muller, I think, voted against the um, abortion legislation that went through prior to Luxon being in in um, politics. You know, it previously wasn't an issue, but but again, politics is all about timing. I think he, and I think it comes down to he's quite naive about politics. I think he just doesn't have political nous yet, and it will develop. I think it will come in time, but it just showed and and. Not just that, in that period, not just that. When he was going for selection, he sat down and did a television interview talking about how he was going to stand for candidacy before he'd been selected. And that pissed off so many people in the caucus because that you do not do that. There's the, the unwritten rules, mm. especially in the National Party. You sit down and shut up and wait your turn. Do the hard yards. And so he upset his colleagues. He set out these very rigid views on social issues and... And, and it's it kind of dogged him, you know, it's dogged him all along. Yeah. Then, you know, it came up when he was leadership, he did that interview with, I think, News Hub, where he didn't actually say abortion is murder, but he didn't shut it down. Again, it shows his lack of political nous. He, um, then Roe versus Wade, the decision was, you know, we knew that was coming, it was leaked. He had plenty of time to prepare. And so I don't understand he's, why he's still in this mess, why it is... <laughs> why they haven't come up with a clever answer mm. because it will come up time and time again and it will keep coming up because it doesn't matter if he says, I'm not going to change the laws because what women, and women are key to, have always been key to national success. Yeah. John Key was great with the, the female vote, you know. They, he won because um, he attracted the, the soft middle female vote. And women just here his position on abortion and what they hear is Christopher Luxon doesn't think that I should have control and choice over my body. And it doesn't matter what side of the fence you sit at, that's a very visceral reaction. Mm. And you can t- you talk to men and you talk to women. And I actually had this conversation with my husband last night because he's like, well, it's very beltway and I don't think people care. And I was like, whoa, matey, hang on. You're not a woman. Mm. Women mm. do care about this stuff. So, so I, yeah, I, again, I think my point is, I think it speaks to his political naivety and he just doesn't have the instincts that he had and he and Bridges had as well. You know, he, those killer political instincts that mean that you can 
think on your feet when you come across a tricky interview or a tricky yeah, question. Yeah, and sometimes it feels a little bit like what David Shearer uh, struggled with. David Shearer, a really intelligent guy, but sometimes you could see when he was speaking during Labour's difficult years, you could he could you could see the advisors. I always imagined in his ears telling him <laughs> things to say, and he just got he just got stuck. You know, he just got stuck. I mean, the the sort of in a way the the. The dilemma, the thing, in terms of Luxon, you know, once there are complaints that he doesn't know what he wants, that he's not, you know, that he's just there to win, you know, which is a criticism mm. that's been sometimes levelled at key as well. And then, so we want more conviction in our politicians, but then we're also saying, oh, he needs to learn how to better dissemble to avoid having to say what he <laughs> thinks. It's a, it's a tricky one, you know? It's a tricky it's one to navigate, it's really right? Tough. To give him that. It's really tough, yeah. absolutely. And I, and I think it... Like that um, speaks um, that dilemma speaks to the wider problem with the National Party. Like, do they do they exist to continue exist to exist in government, mm. or or do they have wider convictions? Like, what do they actually stand for? Are they will they always be a reaction to Labour's policies, mm. Mm. or and so? And I think in the key moulds, they are they kind of do. They're an enormously successful machine, but they do lack a soul. Somewhat, you know, and I think that's what Luxon. I think that's the, the direction that Luxon is is going in, and it, and I think it does help that he maybe. I mean, again, I haven't interviewed him, so I, maybe I'm being slightly unfair. But the perception that I have in in pouring over his utterances and speeches is is that he he doesn't have deep convictions, mm. and he is he isn't he isn't a politician in the same way that say Simon Bridges um, or Bill English. Had had deep views on the economic and social direction of the country. Real deep thinkers on the right who who knew what they wanted to achieve. I'm not sure that, that Luxon is that, but I could be wrong. I could be there's, wrong. He's, it's very early days. There's, there's time for him to sort of set that sort of philosophical stall out, isn't there? It's obviously there's a, there'll yeah. be a tendency to avoid that for, for a little while because it's a hot potato. And, and the and the election. It, I mean, the election campaign. I guess will strip that yes. there. You know, like you've got no choice to but to set out yes. your stall. Um, so, so you know, again, maybe I am being slightly unfair. It, it maybe you know, maybe that will come. And I, I, I guess one of the one of the other. I mean, at, at, at some point in the book, you quote Neil Jones, who's a former Labour staffer and, and now a, a lobbyist and a commentator, talking about how during the Labour years, the way these things, the way the avalanches form, you know, there's a they have their own internal momentum to the extent mm-hmm. that each bad thing looks worse because it falls in the succession of bad things. You know, and that's that's human nature in a way. Like it happens in personal relationships, it happens in work relationships, and it happens in politics in terms of the way we perceive it. Lots of the national things were spectacularly bad. They were made worse <laughs> by the fact that, I mean, there were, there's, a, there's a great quote in the book, I can't remember of it, what, what, I can't remember the exact line, but it was something about, oh, here it is. It was just, it was like that just about every day. You think it can't get any worse, and then it did. Um, one of the, and that was, that was it, right? So, so my question really, in terms of the Andrea Vance meter of uh, continuous built-up clusterfuckery, is where is the National Party now? You know, the the there was that 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 that, that line at the speech at, um, at uh, policy exchange where people have got stuck into. I don't think it's been terrible for him. It might have been terrible if there had come off the back of more things. You know, um, it feels like a sort of forty-eight hour wonder. How much? What's what's my question? How much ballast have they got? How strong is the machine now? How much? How 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 strong? How can it withstand? 
the difficult moments which will continue to come. I think it's fine because, yeah, for all that speech um, was, you know, for politicals, Lee and I, oh, it's a disaster, you know. (laughs) Most people are living their lives and they don't really Mm. care. And also, like, to be brutally honest, a lot of what he said, a lot of people are currently thinking, you know, and and I'm I'm not saying that lightly. You can see... You can see that because the one thing, the one thing when you are writing about politics and you're thinking about electoral cycles is the one thing that I always come back to in polling is not where the numbers are, but it's the right track, wrong track or in different polls, you know, the appetite or the mood for change. And that has, that's clear, you know, the way the wind is blowing, the way the wind is blowing is definitely changing. You can't deny that whether you're right or left. You know, people on the left are worried. People on the right are celebrating because they, you know, they they know that the election is going to be close. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge. And I, I, the other thing I always say about politics is never predict anything because you're definitely going to be. I'll write a column one week and then next week I'll be like, oh shit, I was kind of wrong about that. <laughs> That's the nature of politics because things change and 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 especially in New Zealand politics, it's very predictable, uh, unpredictable. <laughs> sorry. Um, He's got he's got amazing people in around yes. him now, and I think that's that's been one of the problems um, in in opposition is is trying to hire good mm. people and and all the, he's got like Wayne Eagleson, Cam Burrows is back. They've hired um, Hamish Rutherford, who is an f- excellent journalist, mm. to to do his media. You know, like all the people he's got around him are, are phenomenal, and that really helps. But also, like I don't want to I don't want to just to come off as a criticism of the media, of which I am, but the media has decided the narrative now. Do you know what I mean? Like, that everyone was bored, essentially, of national tearing itself apart. In the same way that when this happened, when there was the change of Jacinda, when Jacinda ascended to the deputy and then the leadership, everyone was bored of the story of Labour being crap. And everyone was bored of the story of national being crap. There's only so many leadership spills that you can handle in one cycle. And so I think the media has just decided that in the same way that they did with Key, this is probably the guy. Like, we, you know, we can see this guy as prime minister. And so that essentially, the narrative is that it, he is a contender mm-hmm. and that he can go head to head with Jacinda and it will be a close election and we're going to have a good old-fashioned close election fight. And that that's just... That's, you know, that all these things, I'm not saying that that is the deciding factor, but all these things combine, you know, the timing of it, the right person, the people they have around it, the media direction, and then, you know, we'll see, we'll see. But it's definitely better than it has been in the last, what, since 2017, mm, I guess. Mm. I think oh, just a quick point of correction, the, the media is uh, 100% behind the Labour government after being bought off by a <laughs> $55 million yeah, but, public interest journalism fund. Maybe you didn't get the memo, but that's that's the that's how it works. Now. No, but... It's the fifty-five million. It, like it's get, we're getting a little low, so okay. We'll we'll just the top up. <laughs> but we digress. Look, Andrea, thanks so much for talking to me. That was a fascinating conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. The book is Blue Blood: The Inside Story of the National Party in Crisis, published by HarperCollins, and you can buy it at bookstores now. That's gone by lunchtime. We'll be back soon with another episode with Ben and Annabelle. Thanks to spin-off members who make these sorts of conversations possible. Tutiahe Butler for producing. We'll be back soon. Kia ora e te iwi. Tiahe Butler here, podcast manager at the spin-off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate.
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.